Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Welcome to Insert Here, a sex podcast where lust and learning meet. I'm your host, Kate Warren. Each week, I invite a new guest on the show to share their experiences outside the heteronormative or vanilla worlds of sexual expression. Because as an adult, it can be challenging to learn about and experiment with your sexuality in a way that feels safe and exciting. So I created a place for you to be able to do that from the privacy of your own bedroom or bathroom or commute, very surreptitiously listening. (laughs) Guests bring a wide variety of gender orientation and racial experiences to life through their storytelling. And we prioritize folks with unique perspectives whose voices aren't necessarily reflected in mainstream culture all the time. That means our guests are queer, trans, non-binary, kinky, or experimental in some way. They approach and communicate about sexuality in pretty fascinating ways, so they can shed a light on what you may not have realized even existed or that really interests you or turns you on. They can give you tools about how to approach yourself or your relationships in more compassionate, equitable ways, and teaching us how to ask for what we need while supporting each other's pleasure. We hope that you listen to these guests with an open mind and heart lead with empathy because we are all human looking for meaningful connections through emotional spiritual and of course physical relationships so when we start connecting with our shared humanness we can have better communication deeper love and some seriously mind-blowing sex this week we welcome Najva Sol to the podcast she's an Iranian American digital strategist writer artist and data enthusiast based in Brooklyn New York she is queer cis female who mostly dates women these days. So she'll be talking to us about growing up as a central person in Muslim culture, how we communicate about sex in the digital space, and what exactly consensual non-consent is. Hey, Najva. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. So... Um. To start out, yeah, I would let's get started. <laughs> I, to start out, I would love to have you kind of um, talk a little bit about what it was like uh, growing up Muslim as somebody who is pretty um, as self-described as being kind of a naturally sensual person. Um, well, it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Can you paint a little bit of a picture? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is actually something that is relatable to anybody who grew up in any sort of fundamentalist or more conservative arm of a religion um, and was trying to explore their sexuality, particularly if it fell outside the norms of like what is culturally acceptable sexuality. But, um, you know, I think early childhood experimentation is sexual, physical, and it's not even sexual at that age necessarily, but it's like physical experimentation with what feels good and just getting to know our bodies and how they work is um, 
is really normal. Yeah, it's definitely and, normal. Um, when you try to, when you're an adult in a more conservative religion, like looking at a child doing that, you're having all of your own, you're putting all of your own like preconceived notions onto that child's actions. So like I was a very curious, still am <laughs> very curious young, <laughs> young person who um, was very excited about discovering pleasure uh, within herself and within her peers. Mm-hmm. So you started, you started experimenting pretty early, right? I'm sorry, what? So you started experimenting pretty early, right? Yeah. Well, yes. Um, I probably start, like, I probably realized, I used to call it, like, I remember distinctly, like, one interaction that I had with another young girl where um, we were literally in a closet in Iran, which is so fun. Um, but we were <laughs> literally in a closet, five, <laughs> five or six. And I was like, okay, so I have this button or you have this button. We both have this button actually. And when you press it, it feels good. And when you press it some more, it feels even better. And like, then you keep pressing it. And then at some point it stops feeling good. So let's like, I'll press mine and you press I'll press mm-hmm. yours and you press mine. So, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's such a it's fun way like, to I put mean, it. to some extent, like, that's, like, more advanced than a lot of, like, adult sexual. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, totally. But, <laughs> but I was, yeah, it was just, I had realized it was a button. Like, to me, it wasn't sex. Like, it took right. me, it took me way, so I did get caught at some point. Okay. Having, like, an exploration. And there was this weird moment where I realized that um, I, I was taken out. To, to ice cream with um, my mom, and she was like, "Who are all the people that you've experimented with? Like this way that I caught you?" And um, I told her because I was a kid, and you tell things to your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was basically like, "Don't do that; it's bad stuff." And so shaming right away. Shaming, yeah. She was horrified. Everyone's horrified. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I mean, um, I grew up in a conservative ca- Catholic household, so I definitely understand that. Like, we never talked about sex because why would you talk about sex? Because you aren't having sex. Because you'll go to hell if you have sex. <laughs> and I'm not blaming. This is not like a blame on any specific person. It's just like a cultural. When there's a shame around an activity, then it like gets passed on generationally. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was a very weird dissonance because I could tell that. I was supposed to feel shame, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Let's talk more about but, that. Like, what did you feel? Um, that I needed to hide. Okay, because you were afraid of getting in trouble? Yeah. Okay, so I you didn't, weren't ashamed, but you were like, afraid of getting yeah. in trouble. I was not like, oh, this is a bad thing. I shouldn't be doing this bad thing. I actually never like, outwardly struggled with thinking that I was a bad person for my things. Of course, I have my fair share of internalized homophobia and all sorts of internalized things from society. But like, you know, on a day-to-day level, I wasn't like, oh, I'm such a broken person. I was just like, oh, I know the things that I'm doing are like could potentially hurt me and or hurt the feelings of the people around me or disappoint them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how did, how, what was coming out like for you? Because obviously like you didn't stop experimenting. Um, Actually I did for a while. So I, I was playing around with friends probably till fifth or sixth grade at which point. And so this is this thing that I'm saying, like when you're an adult, you look back on things and you sexualize them. Um, I suppose I was having sex until fifth or sixth grade. If you look at it 
from the like purely logistical adult point of view. Mm-hmm. But I did not think that that's what I was doing. So around fifth or sixth grade, I then became obsessed with boys and was like ready to have my first kiss. Mm-hmm. thinking like I'd never done anything before. Okay. You know, I right, was like, right. I'm, I've had no experiences. I want to have my first kiss. Like not have, not, you know, like those things didn't process as sexual experiences. Right, because you were really were just, just exploring your body and in, in like a much more, and what pleasure meant for you in your body from a, a much more objective kind of viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Though I will say I am very lucky to have, and I think my brother is actually on the same tip. Like my, we both, um, we, cause he just, he just opened a talk at a conference. Um, he, he runs a blockchain company for the adult industry and he just opened a talk at a conference talking about how he started masturbating when he was five. So between the two of us, we, we somehow managed to like still be really into pleasure. <laughs> okay. Like cool. despite all odds right. <laughs> that were against us. Maybe I paved the way. No, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> the, the cycle was broken with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, okay, so coming out, um, I didn't do it. I mean, so I didn't, you know, I, I around 13, I was like, okay, I want to have 12, 13. I was like, I want to have my first kiss. When I'm my first boyfriend, I'm going to do the things you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I was like, love has no gender. But I, I still, my first main partner was a cis man. And um, as I started dating girls, I hid that from my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of lived a double life until, um, because of the internet, they called me out on it. Actually, it turns out my like father had been reading my live journal entries since I was 13. Ooh, so he knew, hello. he knew all along, but oh, it took him about wow. a decade to process that information and wow. wait and realize it wasn't a phase. Wow. 10 years. That's a really long time to sit with something like that without saying anything. How did the conversation go once he brought it up with you well so it was both my parents um and uh they this is just this is always so amusing to me so it was both my parents and they called me to talk about like my career my future my life um they don't speak so it was a very interesting um thing that they were like coming together over this Hmm. uh, worry or anxiety like anxiety about me brought them together anyway so we come together at some coffee shop in DC and they're like, okay, um, what are you doing with your life? And I'm like, don't know. I'm 22. No 22 year old. <laughs> and they're like, okay, but what do you mean? What, what are you actually doing with your life? And I was like, um, you know, I'm this art. And they're like, okay, 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 okay. But you can't, this is an engineering term, but uh, so my dad was like, well, you can't just be ACDC. You have to pick at some point. Oh, um, ACDC being bisexual, like, goes both ways. Right, right, right. But his, but, like, in a, in a terminology that was, like, accessible to him <laughs> from an engineering standpoint. So interesting. Wow. Um, but so, so they had really even internalized that, like, like biphobic idea that you have to pick a team. Right. Well, I think they were, like, the fluidity didn't make sense to them. I think, mm-hmm. like, maybe they would have started to deal with the fact that they had, like, essentially, a.k.a quote-unquote, a lesbian daughter, but they didn't. They had a queer daughter. And then they also, like, and then part of the conversation was, like, well, if you're going to get, um, 
married and have kids, like, you can't just keep being fluid like that, right? Like, and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, we have to, like, undo quite a few levels of expectations of what my future is going to look like, oh, yeah. which is, like, I may want marriage and I may want kids, but none of this is going to look the way you're And we also didn't have gay marriage at that point, so <laughs> I didn't want gay ma- marriage because you don't want things you can't have. Oh, right. Or right. I try not to. Right. Um, try not to window shop at places I can't afford, you know? <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, like the institution of marriage, mm-hmm. um, uh, so that that was that was like a big part of the conversation. And then you know it took them a while to come around. They're actually really amazing and supportive now, and um, they're examples to me about how people can change and grow and move past their own initial hesitations and judgments and confusions. And like love can win, right? That's yeah, awesome. it's pretty yeah. cool. But um, it was terrifying. I didn't know if I was going to be disowned or if I was, what, how that conversation was going to go. I really had no clue. Um, and they sort of basically like outed me to me. And the mm-hmm. thing was that they'd been reading my journals and diaries online. And the second layer of this is like immigrant parents being so disappointed in their daughter being like a creative. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not and a do- they're like, an why are you writing doctor? gossip about yourself online if you're going to write something? And like, and tarnishing your kind of your own reputation, you should be writing something um, important about things that matter, like research, journalism, whatever. And I'm like over here writing personal diary entries. And, um, and then like, you know, then... Now I have written many, many personal essays online, and the golden age of the personal essay is either now or upon us, um, which is just hilarious because, like, I have made much of my reputation on writing my own personal essays. You have. You really have. (laughs) Well, and and I'd like to – let's take a step kind of in that direction. How how have you used the personal essay to to process your your identity and how – and your perception of how that's evolved? Because you've really processed it, it seems like, in a pretty kind of public way by writing online and things like that. Well, my philosophy generally has been, um, I don't really hide a lot anyway, but my philosophy generally has been, like, anything you're feeling, you're probably not alone. And um, Preach. (laughs) I always found the internet as a great way to connect with other people feeling similar loneliness and or to you find examples of people who are who are do, going about, you know, find information and examples of people who are going about their lives in, wish, in ways that I admire or wish I could. Right, and right. so when I was young, I just started, like, writing about my adventures. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's meant to inspire other people to be wild and free, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's um, good. I'm not doing as much of it now. Like, um, but Mich- I am really mindful about content on the internet um, uh, and how that affects and shapes people. Because a lot of times when you search, um, and I think about this a lot, but a lot of times when you search for something online, you're looking for um, answers. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally looking for answers and how you find those answers, which answers you find first and how they're framed are going to affect the way that you approach, you know, solving your, solving whatever it is that you're facing. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've, you've really made that your, your career and you've wrote, you've written, uh, you've written pretty extensively about uh, identity and sex in the digital space. What have you, what have you found in the, in the many years you've sort of been occupying that professional space? In a weird way, I'm actually on the I'm on the out 
outskirts of that. Um, I've been, the past three years, I've been working at a wedding and relationship publication called The Practical Wedding. And um, I've really advocated. So one of the things that I noticed is that we were, I deal a lot with data. And the internet is a great way to get information about the things that people won't say out loud because they will write it into a search box mm-hmm. and click on it. Mm-hmm. And so really quickly, I began to realize as I started to dig into the website's data, and um, I began to realize that like one of our most common search terms um, was uh, first-time wedding night sex. Uh, uh, losing your virginity so on wedding night. Losing your virginity on your wedding night. There's not... And we had an article on that, um, but it was not, it was like one person's personal experience and it wasn't necessarily that positive or informative. Mm -hmm. And so I went to our, you know, editor in chief and I was like, hey, people are clicking on this article from like four years ago still. And they're, these are people who are really looking for something because they're nervous and this is not a great resource for them. So what can we do? And she, you know, we got a much better piece of information up that is still being clicked on today. And that sort of led to us really focusing a lot on sex and talking about sex and marriage um, and sex and relationships and sex and long-term relationships and what we wish we had more of, what we wish we had less of. Um, And I'm not married, but I still, you know, I'm empathetic to people sexual desires at any point in their journey, single, married, divorced, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that we ended up writing about, so our constituents on the site, constituents being a weird word, uh, mm-hmm. our readers, our community. There you our go. <laughs> um, are, they're, very, um, they're very smart. They're majority women, and they're incredibly politically aware. And so we wanted to, you know, people would talk regularly about their desires, but um, we're lacking resources. And as a researcher and someone who's very active in the digital sexual community and the adult community, I we, we've been putting together some resources. And one of the ones that's been like blowing it out of the water was this. We did a piece um, like where to find feminist porn. What is it? Where to find it? Mm-hmm. And now we're one of the top we're like number two. If you search feminist porn on Wikipedia, we're number two. If you're looking for feminist porn, and um, oh, I'm sorry, on Google, we beat Wikipedia in the search results. So go that on, tells go you. on, girl. <laughs> and so and people are really looking for for feminist porn. We're getting like ten thousand hits a month on it, which wow. is not a whole lot, but it's been a while since it's been published. But something really horrific happened. I had gone on vacation and I came back and the article had been written and published and someone had written it in a way that prescribed feminist ideals to porn as the content of the porn. Like Mm -hmm. if you go and watch like these porns, how you know they're feminist is that women are looking deeply into the men's eyes. There's a lot of foreplay and kissing. No one's being treated as an object. It's all very respectful. There's a lot of intimacy. Um, And that's how, you know, it's feminist because like all porn is like somewhat misogynist. And the the thing is, that person should have said, I won't write the article because they clearly don't like porn. Ah, okay. (laughs) When in fact, like the very nature of feminism is just your right to choose. It's your right for consent. And so I had to rewrite it um, because a huge part, I don't want 10,000 people a month looking for feminist porn to feel shame 
for their desires after reading that article. Like, we are the definitive answer on what is feminine porn, and we are telling you that it's um, feeling first and lovemaking only. Like, what? Mm -hmm. What? Right, which is not the case. Right, like you, you're into, you yeah, can be a feminist are, and ask and and like have a gangbang fantasy, which is a wild, uh, wildly uh, a trend that emerged when I was researching to start this podcast. Actually, it's like yes, actually yes. So here's the thing: what makes porn, what makes any industry, also porn and adult industry activities, while like ethical and or feminist, is how people are treated how the people in the company, how the people making the objects... In the production. Yeah, how how it's produced. Mm -hmm. And so if someone on set is being advocated for, cared for, respected, paid well, and feels safe and is consented to all the things that happen and there's no pressure, then great, that's ethical and feminist. Whatever they choose to do in front of the camera does not determine and or like what someone's sexual desires are does not determine whether the activity is like feminist or not feminist. We like that sort of judgment is not, it's not a thing we should be putting on people. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because, and so this is an interesting thing. So I've been reading this book called everybody lies, big data, new data, what the internet can tell us about who we really are. And it is um, about um, data sets that didn't exist before because people when surveyed lie And so one of these really amazing things that's coming up on the internet is that when you look into Google Trends, when you look into search boxes, you begin to realize like people's deepest fears and desires, things that they wouldn't necessarily share with anyone, even people trying to take a scientific survey and get sociological data. And so one of the things that it does is pull Pornhub um, searches. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... um, and it says fully 25%, quote unquote, fully 25% of female searches for straight porn emphasize the pain and or humiliation of women, painful anal crying, public disgrace, and extreme brutal game gang, for example. And then 5% look for non-consensual sex, rape or forced sex, even though it is not a term that um, is searchable on Pornhub. And so this is women. There, there is a double, it is twice as likely that anything that has violence against women on the internet is going to be searched for by women. Which is so, so interesting. Really, and we were talking about this before, right? Like, yeah. are, we, are, it, it, are 30% of women looking for violence-based porn because they are raised in a patriarchal society that fetishizes that sort of treatment and behavior or because it's something that is completely internally motivated? There's no way to differentiate those two or to really firmly no. answer that. But you have the right Absolutely to request not. that kind of porn. Yeah, like, why are you wearing this lipstick because the patriarchy made you do it or because it makes you feel good? Right. Can you tell? Like, nope, if you sure grew can. Up in it, how can you celebrate? <laughs> you know, how can you separate those two things? Yeah, you can. Um, you can. You can try to question within yourself and see if you're, you know, what mm-hmm. makes you feel good and try to be as honest and true to yourself. But if you are turned on by, you know, hearing girls cry, then. You're one of four. Then we're not here to yuck your yum, as long uh, as it is safe and consensual. Yuck your yum ever, yeah. Consent is like the absolute one hundred and ten percent key to what makes something feminist or ethical. Um, and in these, in in a lot of conversations, 
especially around sex or sexuality of women, I do hear like, oh, when it's w- women-friendly porn or something, they're talking about it being more connected, more gentle, more kind, more like real, you know, couples, I don't know, right. lovemaking. And I just, it's so wrong. That's right. just, that's, but the data doesn't support it. That's not actually what women want. And we now have like proof. I mean, yes, it's what 75% of women want, but more women want the crying than men do. <laughs> well, and it's interesting be- because men, in, t- in talking to men about intimacy and vulnerability and and emotion and sharing emotion, like I think there is such a craving for men to have spaces where they can talk about their feelings and their struggles and to have safe spaces where they won't be shamed for talking about like what is what's what's happening in their heart, and mm. and women are you know so there is this sense that. Um, there's not enough permission to be fluid um, about about what you're looking for. Like men can look for romantic, like romantic porn, and women can look for bang, gang bangs. And as long as it's consensual, both those things are fine. Like ne- neither I, one of these have I to want, be attached I want to gender. Everyone to look for the porn that they want, and then not look for porn if they don't like it. Right. Basically, I just want everyone to have the power to choose, and I don't want to take away anyone's, you know, access whatever there are kinds of porn i don't want people to have access to but those are generally ones made without consent because potentially someone in it uh was not of age to give consent or you know their activities that couldn't possibly be consented to so there are things Mm -hmm. but the most part for the most part yeah i love the idea of looking for romantic porn i've never done that but it's out there, and it's interesting. It's interesting because it really a, a, sweet. A, well, it's interesting. A lot of women use Tumblr like GIF porn as kind of their go-to because you can oh. find. And this is definitely like a thing that I do mm-hmm. when I'm like, well, mm-hmm. I don't like. I don't know if I'm like in the mood for like like really aggro porn right now. I just want something like low-key Tuesday night sort of sort of porn, you know. And so I'll go. I'll go and Google like in my like incognito bar, right? And be like uh-huh. like Tumblr lesbian make out porn gifts. Right? Oh, you like lesbians? <laughs> yes, girl. I I actually I, I watch I watch same sex porn almost exclusively. I almost exclusively watch street porn, so there we go. So interesting. Anyways. Right? Well and um, well, and so with but, that, we're gonna we're gonna take a real quick break. Yeah. <laughs> and when On we come back, note. well, and we and when we come back, we can we can touch more about about what it means to kind of be a lady, pow, power dynamics and relationships, and uh, consensual non consent. You're listening to Insert here. All the music you hear on this program produced by Morris. A DC native, now living in LA. Find him on SoundCloud at P. Morris. This song is called Affairs. We'll be right back. Radio. Welcome back. You are listening to Insert Here, a sex podcast where lust and learning meet. 
I'm your host, Kate Warren, and today I am joined by Najva Sol, an Iranian-American digital strategist who's talking to us about trends in porn searching and what we can learn about what people want through our data. Welcome back. Hey. So before the break, we were talking about about the, the role and rise of, of Tumblr porn. which is is my personal fave. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, actually, that I wasn't super familiar with it, and then I was traveling internationally, and I feel it behooves me not to say where, (laughs) so they let me back in. But I was traveling internationally, and I realized I was in a country that banned all porn. Like, you couldn't search for sexual terms, or maybe, I mean, I didn't have a VPN. I'm I'm not that, like, level of tech um, and so I was just trying to figure out, like, what I could look at. Okay. And um, turns out the Tumblr gift went right under the radar. Oh, so I found some sex Tumblrs and was like, this will do. Well, it's cool this because is- a lot of times these Tumblrs are created by couples as their sort of, like, own outlet for their fantasies or what they're interested in. And they really have kind of tapped into a community mm-hmm that identifies with the same things that they're into. So that's a great example of how a digital space can can build community around sex in a way that's really celebratory. Absolutely. I I mean I love that idea. I've never I've certainly never done that. Um, although I have, you know, shot nude photos of a lot of my partners. Like something something about the gaze and the love and the intimacy of those moments. But yeah, it's um, I'm a made, photographer and so are you. Couple <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a photographer and so are you. I mean, and and this is sort of outside of, of like what, what we were planning on covering today. But it, if, let's take, I would love to take a quick minute and like, how do you navigate like the gaze with your partners? Oh, well, I firmly believe that you can't be a photographer, if you, like a photographer of people if you don't have some level of voyeur in you. Oh, yeah. Speaking of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> and dynamics and a couple and sexual interests, like, there's you got to low key be a voyeur. You have to like want to watch something from a distance, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And, and sometimes, and the best photos, like, obviously come from people like not necessarily knowing you're watching, which is all sorts of levels of consensual confusion. Like, God, how many times have I taken someone's photo and they like kind of didn't know it was happening because I couldn't? I mean, obviously, that only happens in like. I, appro- I approach that I've con- already have established. Mm-hmm. I approach consent a little differently. Like even if I'm shooting kind of fly on the wa- wall style, I will make sure that people are aware that I'm there and what I'm doing. And I will even just non-verbally like get some sort of confirmation from them that, that it's okay. Well, so one of the things is that like I've done, I've been a photographer, for example, at like um, a sex camp. Um, cool. Which is, yeah. And what so, is a sex camp? A sex camp is a getaway for like-minded people to go off into nature or whatever space and, you know, try all different kinds of sex technologies and take workshops on sexuality and relationships and um, different types of sensations. Um, and where do these happen? Please tell us where we can find out more. Um, if you can, I don't know. I'm assuming this is public information. I, you know what? You'll just have to reach out to me if you're curious. Okay. Um, you can find it on the internet. <laughs> but um, I've, I've been a photographer at those before. I'm, I wasn't necessarily even sure how I'd feel about it, like if I would be overwhelmed. I've just, I'm always interested in documenting and I have no judgment. 
So it seems like a good, and I'm a woman and queer, so I knew I would have a different gaze. But at those camps, um, you know, the idea is I get the, people have a wristband, whether they consent to being photographed or not. Oh, that's Um, helpful. And then I don't ever ask. I just walk around trying to catch candid moments Mm -hmm. because the consent has been given. This is what we talk about when we talk about blanket consent or like, Safe world, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Let's get into it. Consent, let, instead of enthusiastic consent, every photo, I was just like, okay, this person gives consent at the door, and so they want to be documented, but I'm not going to like interrupt their moment. Mm-hmm. And so, in, with partners, I've sort of done that too, where I've been like, hey, can I photograph you? And then, like, for an hour, I'll just follow them around, and they're doing whatever they're doing. They're getting dressed, but I'm not like, can I take this photo? Can I take this photo? Can I take yeah. this? Because that would ruin the flow. Yeah. Um, and I'm much more interested in capturing something intimate. Um, and so, yes, I had many photos of people t- being taken with zoom cameras and with zoom lenses and all sorts of things that like they didn't realize were being taken, but that they were really grateful existed later, but only because there was already a pre-established thing that I was going to be doing that. Well, they were, they were in a consensual environment. Yes. And mm-hmm. they could have at any time rescinded it and like gone and switched their, um, their, bracelet. their wristbands. Yeah. But they, you know, so, so long as they had the right color wristband, I knew that I could do whatever I wanted, which was great. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, obviously, I didn't take photos of people, like, when they looked, like, upset and angry, because that's not... I, I mean, I'm also mindful of, like, what they want what to they remember want. from their right, experiences. Of course. So, let's, um, let's, let's sidestep a little bit and talk about, like, creating consensual spaces versus continuous enthusiastic consent versus consensual non-consent that involves using like hard and soft limits with safe words. Can you kind of walk us through the differences between those things? Okay. So caveat here, not an expert speaking from personal experience. Absolutely. Very important to me that there is not, I, you know, there's not one way and there's probably lots of people who know more about this than I do, but on a personal level, um, I've never been a active consent. So I think that enthusiastic consent is the base level of how consent should be given. Um, if I mean, you're confused about consent or if you have been told that you're not really good at it, um, you should probably go for enthusiastic consent. And enthusiastic like, consent is when you... Enthusiastic consent. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You can answer this one, I think. Okay. Yeah. So enthusiastic <laughs> consent is when you say, would it be okay if I touch you here? Does that feel good? What if I, what if I put my finger there? Right. And, and so you're getting kind of affirmative, affirmative, mm-hmm. um, confirmation kind of along the way. And the idea is that, and this goes for any of these, uh, different definitions of consent, that consent is something that, um, is granted and can be yeah. revoked at any time. So enthusiastic yeah. consent is like saying yes, all the way through. Yes. So you don't have to question or wonder. There's no gray area. And it's a really, really, really good tool, especially with strangers, especially with hookups, um, you know. So, and as a general uh, I mean, kind of moda operandi. Yes. So then there's the advanced level, um, which requires a lot more pre- Communication. Pre, pre-sex work. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, preparation, really, um, and communication. It requires a different level of communication. Um, and I think that's sort of when you function on the uh, safe word basis. 
So instead of every step of the way, you're asking, oh, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like this? You actually have a general idea. You have a conversation um, and you have a general idea of what is and isn't. You get a sort of map of someone's desires, where their hard limits are on the outside. What are the things on the edge that can sometimes make them uncomfortable, but that sometimes, you know, they want to explore? What are the things they're like feeling really generally good about? Like, these are the things that I always love. I know I love being bitten on my neck. I know I love this position, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Your green lights, your yellow lights, your red lights. Yes. Um, So you get this map and then um, you get this word. Um, And this word is essentially an e-break that can be pulled at any time. It's the emergency break. Uh, So you're just, you're going to function forward. You're going (laughs) to, you're going to do whatever feels natural and intuitive And obviously, you may not be, like, verbally questioning things, but I think there are, to some extent, um, ways physically, non-verbally, that you can tell that there's, um, that this is working or not working. And, um, but you're going to be moving forward with the assumption that everything's fine until the person, unless the person says, um, pineapple. Or whatever, or whatever the safe word yeah. is, right? Pineapple. So you say like green lights are a definite, like yellow lights, like maybe they have some hesitations, but unless they pull a safe word, you know, you're free to, free to pass. You're free to roam. Yep. But red and light things, thing, hard limits are a no-go. And this ties into consensual non-consent because especially if someone, and usually this is explicitly said beforehand because this can be confusing. Um, but if someone is like push past, like I have said this before, I have said push past my nose. So that means that unless I say pineapple, no, don't, and stop are not reasons for you to stop. (laughs) Which is hard and definitely tricky, like especially within the context of the conversations that we're having, like as part of the Me Too movement right now. So, which is why we say like enthusiastic consent is the baseline. Always. Right. And so this is the, what becomes very important in these conversations is that I didn't just go into a sexual situation and have someone push past my nose with nothing else to stop. Right. Right. So you always have that e-break of the safe situation, word. Absolutely. When there's a safe word established, there's another thing I can turn to. But in most sexual encounters and most physical encounters, stop, no, and don't are the only things you have to turn to. So if those things aren't taken as, if those things are taken as maybe try again, how about in a few minutes, then what you're doing is you're actually taking away any break, any like emergency break that exists. So by establishing a separate one, then those words can become maybe, I don't know, it makes me nervous, please try again. You know? Yeah. Well, and especially if you're you're interested in sort of experimenting with, um, with kind of more forceful power dynamics consensually. Yeah. Cause you want to be able to like, at least for me, sometimes it's fun to be like, no, no, stop. And have that. <laughs> right. And then have that. And as like, long as you're not yelling like, pineapple, no, pineapple, <laughs> <laughs> then they're going to continue. <laughs> but all of this is pre-negotiated. It's pre-negotiated. By both partners, which is so, not, or three partners or four, however many people are at the party here. There are it's some so baseline important. rules. And if there's an event, if, you know, if there's a larger event, whatever it may be, I mean, it could be anything from a cuddle party to like a sex party, whatever. But if there is an event, um, there's always baseline rules. And I think that's just the thing. The thing that people miss in a lot of those, well, sometimes no means yes. It's like, no, it doesn't. Sometimes there's really long conversations that are not necessarily that sexy um, that allow for different 
um, you know, different ways of proceeding forward, different avenues for looking for consent. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't had that long conversation, chances are you should be looking for enthusiastic consent. Right. You can't, you can't play in the deep end of the pool without learning to swim in the shallow end of enthusiastic consent first. Make sure everybody's Absolutely. got their water wingies on and inflated properly before you dive into the deep end of things like consensual non-consent. Yeah. Consensual non-consent is really complicated. And even, you know, I've had many partners who like, even if I said, um, so sometimes it's really hard for me to, um, Despite the fact that I have a lot of comfort around talking about sex, I think I've, you know, been talking about sex, relationships, and connection my whole life, both publicly and privately. Um, fantasy and desire have always been personally really complicated for me. Mm. And so one of the, and, and we can talk about that a little more if we want, but one of the things, one of the ways that manifests is I often, I have often historically disassociated from my body. And so maybe the first time someone makes some sort of come on, like they try to like stroke my back or, or, you know, like kiss me in a way that might turn me on. I'm so far deep in like my work anxieties or whatever that I can't even think I'm sort of like annoyed. I'm like, go away. I'm yeah. no sex. No. So when I say like push past those no's and it makes people really uncomfortable because they're like, okay, well, I just want to respect you. And I'm like, don't, because I really do want to have sex. But sometimes it just takes me a minute to even like come into my body and mm-hmm. be aware that this is happening mm-hmm. and, and welcome that sensation and remember that I can feel pleasure and remember that I have desires and, and trust that you want to fulfill those and just need a minute. So like, don't give up on me. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and it's, I think that's where fantasy really comes into play because a lot of people I think really do struggle to sort of get in the head, spa- get in the head space, turn off what's going on in their day, enter their bodies and really tune into their partner's bodies and pleasure needs. And then if you're creating a space um, rooted in, in, fa- in shared fantasy and consensual fantasy, then it can help with that. Um, you know, yeah. if you if you're if you're not 100, per- if you're not if you're acting out like a scenario, and, and you don't have to, and you can turn off the part of of yourself that is like yourself self, right? Where you like have a laundry <laughs> list of things to do, and you can just focus on like, okay, well, like now now we're uh, now we're engaging in this fantasy situation then it can be really liberating for folks. Yeah, fantasy is not my strong suit. It's something I've been working on a lot. I don't know. It's I find it very liberating, but I also find it incredibly intimidating. Yeah. Oh, I think it is for a lot naming, of people. Naming my desires, I am much, much, much more comfortable. Yes. Working within the framework of someone else's desires mm-hmm. and, and fulfilling those um, than trying to find my own I I, it's not that and and to be fair like I do gain a genuine sense of pleasure accomplishment control power all the things that I enjoy from physics like physically spiritually mentally like uh, addressing someone else's desires and pleasures Mm -hmm. but it is well, but it's challenging. I, like some people are really plugged. <laughs> some people are really plugged into their own fantasies, and some people really love supporting other people experimenting with their fantasies, right? And yeah. be and focusing more, externalizing that fantasy life by, like, by running support for someone else, and as an externally motivated. And it seems like you're a pretty extroverted person, an externally motivated person, and I definitely am this way too. Um, <laughs> it it. it, it we use, 
um, or we take the opportunity um, of being with different people or, or, or being exposed to other people's fantasies to sort of investigate our own. Yes. Absolutely. And that's really what it comes down to. So if, if like I mean, for our listeners at my, home who are like, Oh man, I don't even know <laughs> what my fantasies are. Like you can, uh, it's okay to like to investigate your own fantasies um, by offering to support someone else's like that, yeah, as great, long as it's consensual. First, it's a great first step. And what it does is it establishes, um, what, what is the word I'm looking for? It establishes a level of vulnerability. Admitting a yes. fantasy is a vulnerability. Admitting that you want something from someone, leaving yourself in the position to be rejected or laughed at is also terrifying. And as much as I say, like, go out there and do it. God, I struggle with that still, too. Like, yes. my so nightmare I. is that someone will say yes and that it'll be... <gasps> I'll be somehow burdening them, you know? Uh, so yes. I get it. I get it. It's real. <laughs> <That's> so real. <laughs> you're like, oh, like, complicated. you're like, you're like, thank you for saying yes to this strap on situation. But also like, now we're going to do this. <laughs> like, I'm excited. Like, I'm nervous. Or like, do, did your yes actually mean yes? Are you doing like, this are just you to please about me? It or are you just doing this because like I asked you to? Because I want, yeah. I want the person like it's like when you ask someone to go to the movies with you and they don't actually want to see the movie but they just want to hang out with you it's not as fun as if someone also wanted to go see the same Mm -hmm. movie and they're Mm -hmm. like excited with you so it's like not only do you want to put your fantasy out there in this way but you don't want i personally don't want someone to just like be part of the fantasy because like i right you know because it's me i want them to be like yeah i really want to try this with you or like that excites me you know yeah shared fantasy is good but again it like it really gets back to the idea that we are like communicating openly and um it's and creating a space for shared vulnerability right like if someone opens up to you about their fantasy the like don't necessarily be like no that's weird right like don't yuck someone's yum you can you can really kind of like even if it does kind of weird you out a little bit, you can take a beat and be like, okay, tell me more about why that turns you on. Totally. And, and use and it as an opportunity for dialogue. Not every fantasy is meant to be fulfilled by like the person you're currently with. Right. Um, if you want to, Esther Perel has more on that. I don't need to go in that. Yes. So with <laughs> but, that, um, <laughs> we are actually out of time today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Do you have any, any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? No, it's just funny that, um, well, yes, I suppose. The way that data and digital strategy, um, the mindset of like design thinking, always always looking for why and trying to figure out how to do something in the best way and understanding what humans want and going empathy first into situations relates almost point for point to like how to have good sex. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if you're not leading with empathy and imagining how something will make your partner feel, both emotionally and physically, then you're really missing out on an opportunity to deepen your sexual practice. Um, absolutely. Deepen your that. sexual practice. I love that. Girl, yes. I'm here, I'm <laughs> here deepening so my sexual practice, practice with you, so thank you for, for going there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank have you so it. much. Can you tell our listeners where they can, where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, um, on Instagram at at Najva Soul with a zero S zero L like my original one got uh, shut down obviously for inappropriate content <laughs> um, mostly in my stories and then you know najvasoul dot com online and that's N A J V A S O L dot com yeah and with Soul Studio with W I T H S O L studio dot com and you can actually if you look in the bodies section you'll see 
some of the photos that I've taken of um, people's bodies having different sorts of experiences that may be relevant to this conversation. Yeah, go out, check her out online, everybody. And thank you so much for joining me, Nadja. Thank you. You have been listening to Insert Here, a sex podcast where lust and learning meet. I'm your host, Kate Warren, and you can find us online at insertherefullserviceradio.org. We've been coming to you live from the Lion Hotel in Washington, D.C. Stay horny. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.